0: You're listening to Distilling Craft, episode 11, 8675309 Jenny, today we're going to be talking with Rob Masters from the Family Joan Distillery, with a large footprint all over the state of Colorado, including locations in Denver, Loveland, and Breckenridge, Colorado.
1: Distilling Craft is brought to you by Dalkita, a group of architects and engineers who specialize in designing craft distilleries across the US. More information is available at our website, dalkita.com. That's D-A-L-K-I-T-A.com. Hello
0: everyone, welcome to Distilling Craft. I'm Colleen Moore. Hey, just a quick thing before we start today's show. While we're hard at work lining up new interviews and producing new shows, and you are so kindly waiting on us, we're going to reissue a couple of our episodes from Season 1 with some previously unreleased material mixed in. We revisit Episode 11 with Rob Masters from the Family Jones Distillery. Later, our part-time radiogenic distiller DJ is going to talk with us about the history of gin and different ways to make it. Welcome to the show, Rob. Rob.
2: So Rob Masters is currently the head distiller and partner at the Family Jones Distillery. They have a uh, distillery up in Breckenridge as well as one down in, uh, or coming soon, in Denver. He started off uh, working with the Boulder Spirits Company, kind of renting a corner of their distillery and making his uh, Rob's Mountain Gin. He was able to then sell that to Spring 44 Distilling down in Colorado Springs, and then actually went to work for them for about four years, uh, making it for them and getting to work on his recipes. While there, he actually has one of the cooler stills I've ever seen. It's a glass column still and the idea behind it is that he is able to extract pure flavors from the botanicals without any impact from copper or the metal. Uh, it's also much easier to clean and so he can remove his botanicals from that or his botanical flavors from the still much easier. So great cleaning and uh, very pure extraction. After his time at Spring 44, he actually has been working as a consultant, working for a variety of startup distilleries, helping them develop recipes and work on their flavors. An unusual thing about Rob's new distilling venture is that he's actually split it into two separate DSPs. Uh, He has the large production facility up in the mountains where he is able to make whiskeys and uh, his gin. And then he's got a smaller production facility down in Denver that functions as his tasting room. But it's still a true DSP where he's able to make a lot of the smaller spirits that feed his bar, his liqueurs and cordials, and then do a lot more experimentation spirits down in there. It's really an interesting blend. Uh, One thing I thought was unusual is in Colorado in particular, you're only allowed to own four breweries before the state steps in and says, hey, that's too many production facilities. Uh, This happened with Breckenridge Brewing uh, a handful of years back, and when they wanted to add their fifth brewery, they actually had to do some consolidation to get down to four rather than being able to open the fifth. Uh, I don't know anybody who's run into that rule with distilleries yet, and uh, apparently Rob hasn't seen anything on the distilling side either. At the larger production facility, the focus is mainly on making whiskey, and there he's making a bourbon as well as a rye uh, in order to kind of capture what the the current uh, demand spirits are. One of the interesting products that Rob is making in his Denver tasting room in order to flush out that bar is the vermouth-like product. So as everybody knows, it's not allowed for distilleries to make vermouth because it is technically a wine. And so in order to get around that and make all the cocktails that require vermouth, uh, particularly in Colorado where you can only sell your own products behind the bar, distilleries have had each had their own kind of fight to come up with how to make vermouth. In Rob's case, he's taking NGS or a a neutral spirit and diluting it down and then adding botanicals that represent the flavor profile of vermouth and then adding wine into that spirit in order to help give it some of that wine flavor. It's an interesting way to make vermouth that I haven't quite run across before. And so it's enabling him to really expand his cocktail opportunities there at the distillery. Another interesting point about his large distillery is that Rob is actually using it to make his own NGS. Uh, The stills there are large enough that he can get a cost-competitive NGS made internally rather than having to buy it. And this NGS then can be a base for his liqueurs uh, and obviously his gin. And for somebody who really likes a a neutral base profile, it's a great advantage to be able to make that in-house. One of the complexities of having two distilleries and being one head distiller is being forced to run back and forth between the two facilities to ensure that product is being made to your specifications and everybody's staying on top of their jobs. I guess the nice thing for Rob is that he's had experience before with a a very successful product and managing a, a staff below him, and so he's been able to set it up with good people who know what they're doing, and his job has been mainly, you know, quality control uh, and less about uh, having to babysit and make sure that everything is doing, you know, doing what they're supposed to do, or worse, trying to do it all himself. To give you an idea of how large Rob's distillery in the mountain is, he's actually going to be putting away about three barrels a week. Uh, this certainly isn't you know, anything on the order of Jack Daniels, but for a craft distillery, it's a very large uh, amount to be able to start storing. Uh, One nice thing that Rob's previous experiences allowed him to do was he designed his mountain facility first about doing a grain-in product. And not only just a grain-in, but a grain-in rye and bourbon product. Uh, This has enabled him to really tailor his process for those grains uh, and enable him to get the right mill and move his grain in and out of his process fairly seamlessly. Uh, He could also then use the space for his NGS and it really allows him to have great control. Since Rob is distilling on the grain at his distillery, he's actually chosen not to use a direct-fired still uh, for his whiskey and is instead using uh, a steam-coiled still. Uh, this enables him to not worry as much about burn-on, but still get all the, the flavor control that he needs. Since Rob is most famous for his gin, one thing he's done at this new facility, uh, particularly since he has a bar in Denver, is he's broken his gin down into two categories. He's got a, uh, not a lower end, but a less complex gin, as well as a higher end, more complex gin. By having this breakdown, he's been able to create kind of an affordable price point. Uh, and what he's done basically is eliminate some of the botanicals to create a simpler process. Uh, with the higher end gin, not only does he have a kind of bigger juniper push, but I believe he has 11 botanicals in there. And he distills these, with four different distillations, uh, doing the juniper uh, initially in the liquid phase and then adding in uh, the other botanicals through the vapor phase. This enables him to kind of blend on the back end and say, today, you know, my orange was a little bit light, so I'm going to add more of the orange spirit and create the, the right flavor profile. But rather than doing it in the compound style, he's doing it as a distilled style and then blending the multiple distillations. So with the glass still and trying to distill one flavor at a time, uh, how many how many botanicals are you typically running? Uh, say for Rob's Mountain.
3: Well, it depends on what the the end goal is. Um, you know, I, I talked about Joan's House, our our house gin um, a little bit ago, and that I wanted to keep that simple, so that has five botanicals in it uh, versus Rob's Mountain Gin. Uh, it's been a while since I've made it, so I have to think back. I want to say there were eleven different botanicals in there. Um, I think at some point you can get a little too crazy and it's really hard to balance let's call let's say forty botanicals um, so it it really depends on what the end product is uh, if you're looking to make a nice simple London dry style, I think Tangare has three botanicals in it so you know it's hard to it's hard to uh, to argue that uh, you can keep it simple and still have something pretty classic.
2: So with the 11 different botanicals, is that 11 different distillations, or are you combining some of them up and doing, say, three different distillations?
3: Yeah, in the development phase, it is all single distillates that then are blended together. Um, The way that I like to make gin is in two separate distillations, so one distillation of just juniper, and then a second distillation of the botanical mix. And the reason I do that is that juniper is the most important part of making gin. I mean, that is what gin is. It's a juniper spirit flavored with other botanicals, right? So I always want to make sure that our juniper profile is doing what it needs to do um, and and, and playing nicely with the other things. And to do that, I distill it separate from the botanicals so that I can adjust up or down the juniper level um, and let the other botanicals do what they need to do. If it's a London dry style, of course, there's going to be more juniper there, right? If it's a Western style, there's going to be a little less juniper, so... That's how I typically make gin.
2: That makes sense. Have you done any playing around with vacuum distillation? Uh, We were talking a couple episodes back how, you know, rose and cucumber can get destroyed with the high temperature of standard distillations. Uh, And so vacuum can be a way to extract some different flavors.
3: Yeah, I have. A rotovap is actually on order. Um, Rotovap is like my... My next toy, Um, I've played with a Roto-Vap a little bit. I've never actually had one in a facility that I've ran, um, so I haven't spent a ton of time with it. Um, But yes, certainly vacuum distillation is a really cool step towards creating all sorts of flavors that you just can't do. In a uh, in a standard still setup, Um, you know the other factor there when when you're talking about rose or cucumber or whatever is whether you distill in uh, liquid phase or vapor phase. I call it so. Liquid phase would be just throwing the botanicals in the pot with the neutral and, and whatever it is you're distilling it with, or hanging it in a basket and having the the neutral in the pot turn into a vapor and and blow through those rose petals Um, i've had better experience distilling things like flowers like rose petals in vapor phase than than in liquid phase so it just doesn't beat it up quite as much when you distill it in vapor phase versus liquid
2: yeah that makes sense Uh, are you doing any of your distillation in the liquid phase Uh, say the juniper
3: Yeah, juniper is in liquid phase, and I'd say 90% of all my botanicals are in liquid phase. And then just a handful of the very delicate things like rose petals um, are done in vapor phase.
2: So I assume you have a, a dedicated gin still in your large production facility? uh we we don't yet are still in denver actually is i wouldn't
3: call it a dedicated gin still but uh the majority of our botanical distillations are going to happen there in denver uh it's a beautiful 700 liter carl uh with a gin basket on it and um you can run it you you can keep it away from the column or you can run it through the column if you want so um that is going to be our gin still but we'll also make other things on it too so
2: How are you handling cleaning it after the gen runs, Uh, particularly when you're doing the distillations in the liquid phase? Are you?
3: Yeah. Caustic soda, uh, PBW from Five Star is just amazing stuff. So I'll do do a rinse of uh, PBW for a while, um, run a closed loop through, um, hit all the copper, and then we'll take that out, rinse it with water, and then do a run of citric just to kind of shave off that very minuscule amount of copper uh, and regenerate it. So I haven't found a whole lot of problems uh, with flavors sticking behind on the still um, after a good caustic
2: citric run. That's well, certainly my preferred cleaning system. Are you seeing any uh, reaction with the caustic and your copper or anything like that? No, I haven't.
3: Um, I, I think I'm fairly conservative with my caustic. I don't, I don't like it super concentrated, so I don't put a ton in, just enough to get the job done. Um, I'd I'd prefer to spend more time running a closed loop of caustic than less time with a more concentrated caustic, so I, I keep it fairly watered down.
2: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So I know I know historically that your gin has always been a, an NGS base, either purchased or, or made in house. Um, have you ever done any experimentation with either you know with other bases, either a rum or maybe looking at something like a, a malt base, like a Jennifer style?
3: Yeah, uh, Universe style is certainly something that I'm super interested in. Um, I remember touring Anchor Distillery, gosh, it had to have been eight, nine years ago now at this point, a long time ago, uh, and they had a malt wine fermentation where they put the juniper berries into the fermentation, and I remember, like, looking into this fermentation and saying you know what, what are all these little blue specks and figuring out it was juniper berry and ever since I saw that I've always wanted to try that and so that's one of the things that's fairly high on my list of things to do in our Denver facility our R&D facility is uh, do some univer style uh, distillation uh, with a malt wine malt base uh I've never played with using rum as a base uh or agave spirit or anything like that it's really all been neutral um doesn't mean that i don't think it'd be good i think there's definitely some opportunity there but uh maybe i'm a purist in that in that regard
2: yeah the the main reason i'm asking about rum is i know in liqueurs uh the rum base can add a little bit of perceived sweetness to the spirit and i wasn't sure if if anybody was doing that for gin yeah makes sense so obviously there's there's a bunch of different ways to to make gin uh, what are your opinions on some of the more macerated styles, either, uh, doing a, a maceration of your, your juniper up front and then distilling it or doing more of like a, a compound gin, you know, or, you know, just dist- adding those flavors through maceration after distillation.
3: Uh, I think that it's hard to get the general public on board when they see something with color in it. Um, it doesn't mean that it's bad, uh, that it tastes bad. It doesn't mean that it's the wrong way to do it. I just think that you can't necessarily be standing there when, when Joe Public is standing in the liquor store aisle looking at all the gins, and they see a yellow gin next to a bunch of clear ones and say, you know, why is that one yellow? I'm not going to buy that. So that would be my first concern is um, just, you know, getting the color out of it. Uh, my next concern would be consistency. Uh, at least when you've redistilled the botanicals, um, you have a better idea as to what flavor you're going to get as opposed to, you know, you put uh, one batch of orange peel and, in, and macerate it for X number of hours. well, um, you go through that batch of orange peel and you got to order more, and maybe the orange peel from your supplier is coming from a different place, and they're more potent, right? Well, it's a little harder to keep the consistency um, when you're macerating things um, than it is with distilling. So that would be my other concern. And
2: yeah, that makes sense. So that's why you're creating, say, an orange distillate and then blending it together rather than having a, a botanical pile and a little bit of that be be orange. Yep. Just to circle back to, to kind of weird gin, something I haven't been seeing or I haven't seen on the market but I've been thinking about lately is slow gin. Uh it's not that hard to make, it's got a, a great history. Uh have you been playing with it? Do you know anybody who is? Uh <laughs> It's on
3: my list. It's something that I'd love to do. Uh, the folks at Spirit Works in uh, California do an amazing slow gin. Uh, it's in, it's on the market in Cal- in Colorado, so you should go look for it. Oh, it's really, really good stuff. Um, my experience with slow gin is that it's really hard to find slow berries because they come from the UK, and there's a lot of people making slow gin over there. There's a there's a huge craft spirits renaissance happening over there, particularly in gin, and I think that they're kind of buying up the, the majority of the slow, s- slow berry stock. Um, I think I remember seeing that there was some out of Canada at one point, but uh, it's been a year or so since I've looked, but uh, when I did look last, it, it seemed like it was really hard to find Slowberries. So that's uh, certainly something that's on my list of things to to have fun with someday, um, but not anything I have any plans on doing uh, anytime soon.
2: That's yeah, a little bit out there, but hey, at least now that I know there's one producer, I'm going to have to go check them out.
3: Yeah, I think Sipsmith has one, too. They're out of the U.K., but they have a Slow June as well, and then there's always Plymouth, Plymouth, the...
2: Plymouth gin has a slow gin as well. Cool. Thanks. So the next thing I wanted to ask you about were the gin oils. Either, say, chill filtering on the back end or maybe running a Carter-style head so you can collect them separately and then either add them back into your spirit or not. Uh, What are you doing with your oils? Uh, Well, what I do is if I
3: have oils showing up, uh, in a final blending, I know that I don't have enough neutral in there. So, um, if I take my distillate and, and thin it out with neutral, particularly with juniper berries, like juniper can be stretched a long, long way. So, um, you know, if you have one part juniper distillate, one part GNS, um, you could actually stretch that from one part juniper distillate to 16 parts GNS, after distillation um and 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 stretch out those oils so that they don't come into solution in, in a bottling so um that's how i handle oils i really haven't had much problem with it
2: yeah i was i was wondering why you were thinning it out but i've heard that before so it makes sense i guess i just don't spend enough time making gin so the last thing i wanted to talk to you about was barrel aged gin uh there's a bunch of different types out there and i was wondering if you're going to be doing a, a gin aging program along with your whiskey uh, aging and the rest of it.
3: Yeah, uh, specifically in Univer, I think a nice barrel aged Geneva could be really amazing. Um, I made an old Tom gin at Spring 44 that we put into toasted American oak, basically new, new make Chardonnay barrels that was delicious. Uh, so I certainly think that there's room for experimenting with barrels. I'm a huge fan of single malt whiskeys that are finished in sherry casks, so I'd love to do some gin finished in a sherry casks. Um, so, yeah, absolutely uh, doing some barrel finishing, or, or uh, you can't call it aging per the TTB, but um, you know barrel resting of gins is, is something I'm super interested and excited about.
2: It sounds like you're talking mainly used barrels. Is there any... Uh
3: no, no, not necessarily. The old Tom Gin from Spring Forty Four is new, uh, toasted. Oh, yeah, oak. I missed that those were um, new. Uh, sorry about that. Yep, yeah, sorry. They, they're basically Chardonnay barrels before Chardonnay went into them, right? So they're made for they're made for aging Chardonnay, but um, they were used for aging Old Tom Gin. Um, no, yeah, I mean, I, I I think my personal opinion and taste is I don't know that I would love gin aged in a bourbon barrel you know a a number three char 53 gallon bourbon barrel i think that that's probably a little too much wood for my liking when it comes to gin i like more delicate things like a toasted oak or uh uh, you know like used cognac barrels or something like that so uh that would be my kind of preference to stick towards the lighter end of barrel aging than the the heavy char um you know wood flavor
2: so are you generally leaning towards shorter shorter barrel aging are you thinking like yeah. three to six months
3: i think i think Geneva probably has enough power to stand up to something a little bit longer like two three four years but uh you know to do a standard neutral base gin uh in a barrel for longer than six to twelve months i think would be a, a bit much
2: so what are you looking to pick up from the barrels? I mean, if it's a used barrel, you know, are you looking to get the essence of the previous spirit? Or are you trying to just get a reduced barrel profile? Uh, with new barrels, are you looking to get, you know, kind of that vanilla caramel? Or are you looking more, you know, for some of that tannin bite? Yeah, vanilla, butterscotch, um, a little bit of smoke, but not a
3: ton of smoke. Not like whiskey smoke, um... But yeah, vanilla and butterscotch, and then certainly if it's a used barrel, you you do want to get some character of whatever was in there before, whether it's sherry or port or, you know, chardonnay, whatever. I think that uh, it's important that if you're using a used barrel, you should have some of that essence in there.
2: Well, I'm not sure we can really do a gin episode without talking about tonic, and I know I've read some uh, comments from you in the past that you're kind of opinionated on your tonic. So, you know, uh, a, what is a good tonic? What makes a great tonic? Something that's nice and
3: well-balanced, um, not too sweet. Uh, I think a lot of the mass-produced tonics are, you know, it's corn, corn syrup and and bubbles and, and tonic flavoring. So, you know, something that's got a good uh, quinine bite to it, just a, you know, a decent amount of bitterness, not too sweet, uh, but nice and balanced. So... I think that that's important. You know, if you're going to spend a bunch of money on a nice bottle of a uh, of well-made gin, you might as well spend some money on some good tonic too, and not just, you know, get the corn syrup sweet and stuff. Awesome. Thanks
1: again for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Today's interview is brought to you by the team of architects and engineers at Dalquita. Dalkita has been serving the craft distilling industry for over 13 years and are committed to production facilities that work. Now let's get back to the show.
0: A special thanks to Rob Masters for taking the time to talk with us today. Up next, our tame distiller and his lecture on the history of gin and different ways to make it.
2: So gin is not my favorite spirit, but I think it's something that most craft distillers are starting off making. And so it's a great thing to talk about, particularly the different ways to make gin so that you can look at how to set up your distillery to make it effectively or to see how it can fit into your growth plans. So basically it breaks down, there's two types of gin. Uh, We have distilled gins and we have compound gins. For some reason, compound gins have always been perceived as a lower quality than distilled gins. I don't know if I agree with that. Whether it's through maceration or through addition of flavoring elements, I think you can do a lot of flavor control. In a compound gin, basically being able to add exactly the flavor you want and the exact amount you will want has a lot of benefits to me. Uh, and then you can always do your dilutions you know, either with NGS or spirit and then water to get it dialed in exactly where you want it to be. That being said, distilled gin certainly takes a a whole lot more skill than than compound gin because you, you basically have to get it right through the still. Uh, as opposed to getting to kind of play with it in the lab and and dial it in that way. I don't perceive a difference between the two, but you you certainly need a a good lab and a great palate to do the compound gins. Historically, gin has an interesting kind of life. Uh, It actually started off as a Dutch spirit, Jennifer, And basically what it was was a a malt base that they added uh, crushed juniper to, and then that was fermented and then distilled. And so basically it was a mix between say, scotch or malt whiskey, and juniper flavor. Over time, as this particularly moved into England, they got rid of the malt base and switched over to, well, still a grain base, but kind of an NGS a pure base, a vodka base. And then they were adding the juniper flavor either through uh, a maceration prior to distillation and then distillation, or doing a uh, compound, like I was talking about earlier. The interesting thing about the, the London dry style, which is basically what the Jennifer ended up turning into, is that it's a a very simple type gin. You know, typically we're talking three to four botanicals, obviously juniper is the king, Uh, citrus tends to be the number two node in there, and then it it has kind of changed as it's moved over to the west, and we've seen a lot more complex flavorings, a lot larger botanical loads, uh, and then juniper kind of disappears as the primary spirit. It's still there, flavor, not spirit. Uh, It's still there, but it's not nearly as powerful as it is in, say, the London dry style. Another interesting thing kind of going on in the the gin world that I don't see a lot of people talking about is uh, Germany actually has its historical gin spirit as well. Uh, And basically what they did there was actually a crushed and fermented juniper berry. So the whole thing was done kind of from the beginning with juniper. And now they're calling that Steinhager. So that's something that I think we m- might start seeing more of as people are looking for ways to differentiate, is trying to bring over, say, a, the German style of gin. So with London Dry, there's generally four flavors, like I was saying. You've got juniper, you've got coriander, angelica, and then your citrus, your lemon-orange peel. Those four core flavors kind of go through all the styles of gin. You know, obviously there's some balance on the, the three that aren't juniper that may change out and get replaced with other flavors, but those, are, those four are definitely the most popular So how are we actually making gin? Uh, The first thing to talk about is the absorption of those flavors. We've decided kind of what our flavor profile needs to be. Now we need to look at how we're going to capture that. Uh, We've obviously talked fairly extensively, considering how little it's used, about vapor distillation and using that to capture some of the more delicate aromas. The next kind of way to look at it is other ways to capture this. So most people look at distillation kind of as two ways. One, you can capture it in the vapor phase so what we're doing here is we are distilling our spirit and then those vapors are traveling up through our still either through a gin basket or over to a carter head and they are able to extract the different flavors from our botanical blend the other way to do this is to actually put that botanical blend into the still directly by allowing those flavors to kind of sit together you will get some leaching out of the botanicals and the flavor will get in there this will also create a much stronger flavor So if we're talking about a compound gin, this maceration would be done on the back end. If we're talking about a distilled gin, this maceration can be done on the front end. If it's done, it's typically only done with very hearty flavors that you can really extract a lot of, because you're going to lose some of that flavor profile once you distill it. Typically, again, we're talking about your bittering agents, juniper being the the primary one if you're using it. Uh, I've also seen some of the the cinnamon bark type stuff that give kind of a tannin bite as well are put in on the, the front end. That way they can lose that bite after distillation. There's two ways to do that maceration. You can either do it cold and put it in there, let it soak for a day or two, then strain it and distill the liquid. Or you can actually put that bulk botanical into your still itself. A couple of pluses minuses here. If you're doing it cold, it's going to take longer to extract the same amount of flavor. You also then have to come up with some way to filter it, unless you're going to do both a cold and a hot. Uh, if you're doing hot, you have a lot larger cleanup to do. Basically, you're going to be boiling, say, those juniper berries. And that's going to break them down and create kind of a mush or a sludge in the bottom of your still that needs to be cleaned out. Plus, you basically are getting 100% extraction on the oils. And those that don't get distilled are going to coat your still. And so cleanliness is going to be a lot harder, or I should say be the hardest, on a hot macerated uh, gin. So from there, we've got our vapor. And so, generally speaking, there's two ways to do vapor extraction. You can either go through a gin basket, which is hung directly over the pot of your still, or we can go through a, a carter head, which is hung basically off to the side of your still and allows the oils to either run back into the pot or not. I certainly am a fan of the, the Carter style, and I prefer the oils to not run back into the pot, both from a cleanliness perspective and from a controls perspective. I think if you can capture those oils, you can either add them to your gin at the end to make it more flavorful. You can add it to, you know, bitters and whatnot to help your bar out. There, There's a whole lot of things you can do with those oils once you capture them on your own. But as as I kind of alluded to earlier, I tend to lean towards the the compound gin so you can do a little bit more lab work. Most people don't agree with that. There is one other way to extract flavor from our botanicals, and it was certainly done more back in, in the day than it is done now, and that's a percolation system. And so in percolating, basically what we're doing is we're allowing the liquid to boil off, create that vapor, then it condenses and runs back down through our botanicals. That liquid then hits the water, or wash, uh, boils again, and continues running through. Uh, This is a leaching cycle, and so obviously this is most famous now as as a way to make coffee. But it is also a very effective way to make gin. Like I said, not seen as often, but I think it's kind of cool if somebody was using a a percolator to, to make their gin. Now that we know how we're going to extract our flavors, the question is what do we use to extract those flavors? Uh, we need to look at how those flavors are absorbed into our spirit. If you think back a couple episodes to our conversation with Henrik, what he was talking about is there's only so much flavor that can actually be absorbed into your palate and into your brain. So if you have more than that, you're just kind of wasting money on putting that botanical in there once you've passed that upper sensory threshold. So you need to watch how much flavor we're putting in there and what that absorption rate looks like into your spirit. The other end of this is to look at what you can do to maximize that absorption. So some flavors absorb very well into high-proof spirits. Other flavors need a lower proof and need some of that water to get the extraction into the, the water phase rather than the ethanol. And so the easiest way to do this is to do your maceration at a very high proof. Most of those bittering agents, juniper and whatnot, have a very good absorption into ethanol directly. And so if you do that cold maceration at 95% ethanol, you can really absorb a lot of flavor faster than you would if you diluted it down. On the other end, when you're looking at your hanging baskets, they do better at a slightly lower proof. Typically, what I recommend is a charge about 60% ethanol. That'll get you somewhere in the 80 to 90 range in your vapor phase. And just that little bit of additional water vapor will get you a better flavor extraction. So what you can do there is do your primary maceration, your cold maceration at 95%. Once you get into the still, dilute that down to 60%, then distill that. That'll allow you to get maximum extraction, both from your bittering agents and from your aromatic agents. That is kind of the typical way to do it. Generally, when you do that system, you're going to be looking at about 80% ethanol for your heart's cut on the back end. If you get too much lower than that, you're really going to be getting some tails, even though depending on how you make gin, there really aren't tails, but just kind of some funky flavors coming out of your, your botanicals much higher than that. And you're not seeing the flavor compounds coming through. So obviously if you're distilling your gin to say 95% ethanol, you didn't pick up a whole lot of flavor in there considering you started at probably 96%. So that's kind of that window that I see is, you know, you get down below 75 and it's just a really, really funky gin. You get over about 90 And it's just too pure. You're not seeing any flavors in there. The next question is the base. So we've kind of decided what flavors we're going to pick up. We've decided how we're going to pick up those flavors. Now the question is, what is our base and our medium? Obviously, back at the beginning of this, we talked about the history of gin and juniper. And so a malt base is very historically accurate and adds a lot of cool depth of flavor to your gin. It's also not the style that people expect. Your London Drys and your Western-style gins are are much more common, and people expect that pure and clean base for the botanicals to really play off of. Uh, If you're doing that, we're definitely looking at at a minimum, say, vodka hearts uh, or NGS levels uh, to extract it out and give you the purest palate you could hope for. The next from that is using your base to give you flavor. One of the ways to do this, most typically, is with a grape base basically making brandy. A grape or a fruit base in general, brandy will give you an additional fruit boost to your botanicals after distillation. So if you're not using, say, apple in your botanical blend, but you use an apple-based spirit, you can still have that apple essence make it through to your final product. The other way to look at this is with a rum base. Uh, Rum adds sweetness. And so if you wanted a little bit sweeter gin, but you didn't want to, say, add 1% or 2% Sugar to the back end, you can use a rum base, a sugar wash, in order to increase the perceived sweetness of your gin. The base is really what allows you to add bonus material to the botanical blend. Obviously, you can go really far and say, uh, all the way back on episode two, Sean Smiley is using a tequila base for his gin. And so that hard agave fermentation really comes through in the final product and makes his gin very complex. But it also makes it less of what people perceive as a gin when they taste it. So looking at your base, the question is always, what do you want it to taste like in the end? And there's a million different ways to do it in between. And those are just a couple that I've seen that do some fairly cool things.
0: Are you interested in filing a report with us? Well, we're actively seeking professionals to give us the lowdown on the technical aspects of distillery operations for our listeners. Contact us via our website with your pitch. Do you have feedback on this show? Well, send us an email to distillingcraft at dalkita.com. Of course, if you want to find out more about this specific episode, go to our show notes on our webpage. That's dalkita.com slash show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed by Jason Shaw and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. And finally, a special thanks to the Dalkita team behind this production and the man that puts it all together, our sound editor, Daniel Phillips of Zero Crossing Productions. Until next time, stay safe out there. I'm Colleen Moore.
1: Dalkita is committed to getting intelligent and quality design solutions out of the craft distilling industry. Check them out at their website, Dalkita.com. That's D-A-L-K-I-T-A dot com. Until next time, this has been Distilling Craft. Cheers.